0: Hello and welcome to Freightonomics back in house, Anthony Smith. We're in a studio. Back in the studio. Uh, Feels nice to be here, also with a new setup. Yeah. Got a little new, little new setup going on, make things fresh, uh, change things up a little bit, because we need to do that from time to time. But uh, welcome to Freight Dynamics, where we discuss what's going on in the macroeconomic world and combine that and how that relates to freight and tra- domestic transportation, uh, as well as a little international transportation, because it's all connected here uh, in, in the global supply chain system. And I'm Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence. With me, as always, Anthony Smith lead economist. And we got a big show today. We do. We you kind of surprised me. with like did. some econ-esque <laughs> stuff. Here. I, I actually, this show is going to be more about an ed- education for me, uh, you know, but you're going to help me along this journey. I basically have come to, you know, I was going through the headlines. I was going through a lot of stuff. You know, we live in the age of information and I just basically got interested in this topic. Yeah. Uh, Because I feel like it's a very viable and important topic here over the next several months, if not years, Uh, free trade versus protectionism. That is that is the topic of today's show, and that's. I love econ too. I find it exciting <laughs> as well. You know, it may not sound super incredible and mind blowing, uh, but we'll break down what those two things are and what they mean, uh, and how they're going to impact because they're playing in a more of an important role in logistics and transportation in the domestic United States more than ever than I in my. Uh, career, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's definitely a big hot topic over the last two years, and it looks like that's going to continue and persist. So we might as well all get on board and say, okay, what, what is this that we're dealing with? What's good? What's bad? What do we need to watch out for? So we'll break that down here in a little while. But first, some huge stories. But wait, are you looking at LinkedIn today? I Anthony? think so. <laughs> so I'm going to be looking at my computer
1: monitoring, uh, monitoring LinkedIn comments here, Facebook as well. But just want to have it pulled up
0: and. Good to go. So if you want to jump in on the conversation, just give us a shout. Heck, yeah. So huge story, huge news uh, over the weekend. UPS's LTL division. Uh, UPS Freight, as it's affectionately called, getting sold off to TFI International, a Canadian logistics company. Uh, they're going to take over. And, you know, a lot of this is crazy, too, because UPS huge LTL uh, provider in the United States. They sold it for $800 million. Uh, that's a discount off the 1.25 billion that they uh, they purchased it for way back in 2003, uh, overnight freight. Um, and a lot of union, a lot of labor uh, issues within this uh, division uh, that they're gonna have to hash out. Uh, they're gonna have, TFI's gonna handle anything moving forward uh, on the uh, the pension fund stuff for the union. Uh, and UPS will handle all of the uh, historical. And then that begins once the transaction completes. But what this means for the overall freight market, UPS, obviously a huge uh, player in LTL, uh, as well as, you know, partial logistics here over the last year, and there's several years, I should say, um, and moving forward. And, and really what's, you know, it's not surprising, I don't think, to anybody in the industry or the space that uh, these two sectors of, or segments of UPS really did not integrate. Uh, and you can find that in Mark Solomon's article on, uh, on FreightWaves.com. Uh, you know, UPS, you know, after a tough 15-year run is, getting, is going to be sold. And um, I, I don't think it's a big shock because there's a big difference between truckload and LTL, and there's an even bigger difference between LTL and parcel. And to think that they all kind of work along the same lines is, is, you know, huge fallacy of thought. Um, Parcel logistics is deconsolidation on a massive scale. You have a lot more reconsolidation, a lot more distribution networks, a lot more moving parts, almost exponentially more uh, than the LTL sector side. And they just do not necessarily line up, especially when you're talking about, you know, the nature of parcel. Parcel doesn't require docks. It doesn't require, you know, a lot of home uh, delivery, a lot of home pickup, uh, a lot of residential area interaction. LTL still largely moves uh, dock to dock, Mm -hmm. um, still relies a lot on basic truckload maneuvering, uh, forklifts, things like that. Pallets still dominate LTL. Parcel, not so much, Uh, hence the box trucks. Yeah, and I mean, at the end of the
1: day, we're talking about a business here, Mm -hmm. and when we're looking at this space, is it what they typically do? So... Knowing that the logistics industry is built around margins, I can only imagine trying to hone in those margins and the losses that they must have incurred along the way of really trying to fine-tune all of this.
0: Yeah, yeah, and just think about it as a a business that does LTL and Parcel. You have two separate docks or separate spaces. Parcel, you don't even have to have a dock. You just have to go into, basically walk into the front of an office pick it up, move it out. You've normally got a little space there. You know, your FedEx and UPS uh, boxes, if you will, they come in, they run in, they pick it up and put it back on their box truck. LTL, totally different. You're you're still operating largely on 28, 53 foot trucks, 48 foot trucks, et cetera, Um, docks, forklifts, et cetera. There has to be some sort of warehouse or facility that holds pallets of freight. It it, just—they're not remotely the same, nor are they really related at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, The only—the only similarity here is that most of the time they do get consolidated and put on a truckload at some point in their journey across the United States or wherever they're going. That's right. it. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, that was a pretty big story coming yeah. out. Well, who wrote that? Was that Mark Solomon? Mark Solomon covered that. Does a fantastic job right. covering a lot of the industry news. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. UPS Freight didn't make a lot of money. Uh, they really didn't put a lot of time and energy into it. Obviously, the, the parcel segment dominates a lot of their business decision making in that section. And they still have a lot of stuff to hash out uh, in terms of what the, you know, the customer uh, experience is going to be like. TFI is obviously going to have a role in it, but UPS is transitioned. It's not just an overnight thing where it's like, okay, now you're TFI's customers, et cetera. There's all these facilities, drivers, docks, things like that, that they've got to go through and hash that out. So that's not going to happen uh, right away. Now, um, I'm going to skip over the one I have listed as two and go straight to three here, because mm-hmm. I think the two one is a better segue into what we're going to talk about today. Right. Uh, COVID, LA port shutdown.
1: Yeah.
0: Did you read this article? Yeah. Brown John Gallagher? Miller? Yeah, Greg Miller writes this, uh, basically saying, you know, the Port of Los Angeles, if it were to shut down due to COVID outbreak, there's over 600 employees that are currently infected or have been exposed in some form or fashion. If this were to shut down right now, it couldn't be worse timing yeah. uh, for a lot of the logistics in the United States. You're talking about, you know, uh, ships that are still at Anchorage out in the Pacific Ocean waiting to get in. There's container backlogs. There's still a ton of ships backed up and all the way into China. They're working through China, uh, Lunar New Year <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, to get this backlog cleared out. We've got inventory rest- stocking events that we've covered extensively on all of our Freight Waves uh, TV shows and everything like that. So just the timing couldn't be worse if this were to happen. Now, he does write that he does not think that this is going to happen, but the threat is looming and 2020 isn't isn't done with us yet, is it? No, it's 2020 part two. (laughs) And really,
1: I mean, this kind of hones into a perfect storm scenario, right, where you kind of get to see what everything, all the variables that could go wrong could potentially still go wrong. And really, I think it's a good article written by Greg Miller kind of outlining Mm -hmm. what some of the really big headwinds are as we move throughout the year. And it's funny because there are all these massive things happening right now, but to like the average consumer that's just waiting on something coming in, (laughs) they might not just be like, you know, just chilling at home, just like, well, I wonder where everything's at, not knowing the entire
0: storm that's going around. Um, just kind of facilitating the supply chain. Yeah, and on, and on the macroeconomic side, I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit in the way that a lot of these shippers and companies have not received their orders that they put six weeks ago. Yeah. And if they don't get these orders in a timely fashion or in an expected window, uh, this could have actually damaging economic effects downstream as, you know, their order fulfillment process, their order fulfillment cycle gets lengthened uh, to months versus weeks. And they can't make sales if they don't have their inventory. Uh, consumers start to return goods if they don't get enough because there's other options out there, a lot of competition going on. Uh, if, they, if this were to happen and the flow of goods is stopped in some form or fashion, this could have uh, significant consequences yeah. to a lot of companies uh, that rely on a lot of that trans-Pacific trade flow. And, and I mean, when we're looking at returns now. There's some companies that are just
1: like, you know what, we'll, we'll eat the, the return, keep the mm-hmm. item. And so it's just like, <laughs> margins are being depleted on both sides. Well, Now I don't want this item anymore. Keep the item because we can't handle
0: the return anymore. So it's just (laughs) an awful storm all around. Right, right, yeah. So again, we'll monitor that situation obviously. Make sure you're tuning in to Freightways.com to make sure that you're up to date on all that stuff. Um, Greg Miller does a fantastic job of covering that space along with all the other American shipper uh, folk there. Uh, So the next article that I wanna highlight, now this is the transition article into what is the larger uh topic of today jones act support uh you know biden underscores support for jones act now the jones act basically says anything moving domestically from port to port uh you know that includes the territories of the united states like puerto rico guam etc has to be a u.s manufactured and manned ship uh this is a hundred year old uh order basically says you you know, a Chinese boat cannot be operating, even if it's manned by Americans, cannot be operating between ports in the United States. It was written to, you know, this is an example of a protectionist style uh, law or rule, uh, basically saying I'm going to keep all of our resources domestically focused on this particular process and industry. It's there for security reasons. We'll outline some of those uh, here a little bit later in the show. But, you know, this is There's a lot of arguments for it, a lot of arguments against it. I think some of the arguments, uh, you know, for security purposes, et cetera, have been a little bit more prominent here in recent years. Uh, You know, I think with a lot of the trade tensions and, uh, you know, political unrest globally, uh, there is an argument to be made there. But along with that comes cost. And certain of our uh, territories, such as Puerto Rico, uh, you know, and... uh, the Virgin Islands and Guam, they get to pay higher costs because of this. Uh, and that is basically the quid pro quo in terms of protectionism versus free trade, which is the segue into our, uh, our larger topic here today. Yeah. And I have, uh, I don't know
1: if I'm a little bit behind on this, but I have LinkedIn pulled up here. There we go. And <laughs> I just have to give a few shout outs here before we jump in. Rhonda is in there. Um, Clarissa, uh, Clarissa Carver is here. James Fry, good afternoon. Um we have Ray Gonzalez saying Parcel's going to be big since the pandemic came into play. Certainly agree. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, just want to give a quick shout-out. But yeah, I mean we're looking at protectionism. There are tons of cons. There's a mm-hmm. few pros, if you're depending on your mindset, your perspective, when you're looking at things. And that's only on like I, I feel like a short-term and localized uh, mm-hmm. scale. And so when we're looking at these protectionism, Overall, in my economic mind, I see a ton of economic inefficiencies. Right. Especially when you put these in place, it's hard to peel them back. I mean, you look at some protectionism, I, I kind of feel like I'm going on an econ rant right now, yeah. but you, go, you look at some of the protectionism places that are things that have been put in place, I think most commonly I always look back to, um, always look back to the to agriculture, or right. some farmers, and mm-hmm. they are needed. They are they, they, They're amazing, they keep America fed. But a lot of times we put some protection acts in place, some subsidies in place, that really start to hinder the entire uh, economy for agriculture. I mean, it should never be, now this might not be a completely protectionism thing, but it should never be a better thing to um, dump out tons of milk, because <laughs> that's gonna be the most economically efficient thing because you can't split the market. Or So I'm always for free market, let the people decide and I understand where the initiative is and it's one of those things where you try to push one button to fix a problem and the entire board behind you just lights up with all these other errors and issues.
0: Yeah, so let's, let's back up a step here uh, for our audience and make sure that they understand exactly what we're talking about and go into a little bit more detail on what protectionism is. Uh, protectionism is defined as the theory or practice of shielding a country's domestic industries from foreign competition by taxing imports. Or, you know, there's other regulatory activities that you can have in there as well, just like we were talking about with the Jones Act, Basically saying you have to use, you know, through the use of legal means, you have to use a U.S. manned ship and crew to operate between ports. Uh, now, there's all sorts of loopholes and ways to get through that. Uh, some of the article uh, points some of that out. But, you know, in, in regards to the overall economy, uh, Trump actually was pressing for a lot of protectionist-style tariffs here over the last couple of years in uh, you know, what turned into a trade war with China. And this is one of the pitfalls of protectionist actions, is that you escalate tensions between countries, and it does threaten the balance of the global economy. Now, again, not trying to take sides in any of this uh, politically or whether or not you agree with it or not, but let's outline some of what the pros of protectionism are and you know, obviously you've already outlined a few of the cons, but, um, so some of the pros of protectionism encourages in-house development a less external risk. So you don't have, you know, so a lot of the supply chains have sourcing, uh, over in Asia right now. And what are they doing right now? There, there's the COVID pandemic. So production facilities are at risk. You've got across the ocean. Now you've lost control of your transportation costs coming across the ocean, all sorts of variables influencing, you know, your, th- threat to production of your goods uh, coming into the and being able to actually sell those goods. So there's, there's, there's a pro of protectionism. It actually keeps more things in house. You know, if you're in a company and you outsource dirt certain segments of your company, you may lose a little bit of control of your process, but you gain a lot of cost effectiveness uh, through that process. So there's, uh, th- there's, there's a real-world example of that. Job growth. You're going to protect your jobs for your country Obviously, this, in theory, leads to, you know, if more people are employed, they're going to be able to, you know, spend more money in your economy, and therefore, it should sustain. Now, I'll let you break down some of the pitfalls of that here in just a minute. Lower volatility. You do not have, once you have control over your sourcing and your materials and your goods... Uh, and your employment levels and everything like that, you really don't have a lot of volatility in that sector because you're controlling all of the means of production. Uh, Once you have that control, you have less risk, therefore you're able to get in front of the thought of things. One of the obvious trade-offs here is that you don't have the innovation. You don't have process improvement uh, with the speed that you would normally have in a purely competitive environment. Um, National security. Pro. (laughs) You're keeping everything in a country, and you are now able to not have as much outside influence. People are not going to come in and out of your borders. You don't have inferior products. You don't have, like, you know, Trump was uh, going after Huawei. Uh, You know, a lot of that was revolving around the fact that they were, you know, supposedly having access to our uh, information through their microchips. Um, Again, national security uh, is now a little bit more under control again, in theory, <laughs> yeah. uh, of in under protectionism. Now, consumer protection. There's no regulations. Uh, you know if you if you build something i mean i say there's no regulation there's less regulation over whether or not you know you order something it's produced in china the quality of goods not there they don't have the same quality control uh, assurance that we do here in america again in theory (laughs) Um, and we've all ordered something from overseas and thought oh this isn't (laughs) this isn't what i ordered and they just don't have the same level of uh, quality control there and of course this this is probably the only one that actually, and I think you were touching on this a minute ago, safeguarding uh, strategic industries. Agriculture, obviously, one of the most important industries is that feeds our country. In times of crisis or conflict, you want to have as much control of that as possible, uh, especially when you have to cross an ocean yeah. <laughs> or some sort of border crossings. It's pretty invaluable to make sure that you have enough food to feed your population and sustain throughout. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And (coughs) we even have Calissa Carver in the comments saying,
1: of course, that I'm oversimplifying, (laughs) but uh, that Protectionist Act uh, protects our fisheries. So I think that's one of the parts there um, that there are definitely aspects of protectionism that are going to protect some of our ecosystems that we have in place, make sure that we're not overfishing, I'm sure, meet certain quotas and and, and all that stuff. But looking at a grand scheme of things of looking at what does it do to an entire industry, not just like a subsector and kind of protecting certain uh, industries from any kind of competition more so than uh, protecting, um, you know, I guess ecosystems and things like that, which is also important. (laughs) But um, definitely, I think the first thing that I'm kind of looking at and thinking of is one of the points that you brought up was, um, you control everything internally. So when we have that supply chain that's all being controlled internally, that's a huge deal. And so I think that's one of the few pros is (laughs) that especially when we're looking at food or things that you know Americans are consuming you want to know okay is this going to be held to the same level because it's maybe it's not exactly a commodity because a commodity is going to be a thing that you can replicate time and time again but some things are variable you know Um, maybe the food is not quite up to par as to what you want to have within your country Mm -hmm. and so I can see that definitely being a point um, so that's definitely one of the big pros. I think it's like you control certain aspects of your supply chain internally.
0: Yeah, yeah, and you know, let's dive into some of these cons because I think I've, this is where I've I've whetted your appetite as an economist. Um, you know, the cons of protectionism, obvious. I mean, I think a lot of these are obvious to me as I was diving through this and really perusing a lot of the uh, the research on it. Uh, your choices are now limited uh, because you know, say you don't live in America but you live in Iceland. You don't have access to the same resources in Iceland that you do in the United States. Uh, Hot hot springs, uh, very prevalent in in Iceland, great tourist spot uh, from what I hear. Uh, But you don't have the access to agricultural uh, means to support your population like you do in the United States. So you're really limiting your availability of resources. You can't go out, you now don't have access to You know, corn, tomatoes, like they don't have a prayer of growing anything outside of a greenhouse in Iceland, let alone on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So protectionist, if you are purely protectionist and isolating, uh, you have to be able to produce uh, a lot of stuff within your own borders. And even here in America, we can't grow year round every single commodity that we have, you know, produce year round. And certainly having the means of production closer to the resource itself makes it more efficient. Yeah, and I think that's the beautiful thing about free trade is
1: because one country can produce something, and it might not be that, you know, they might not be a resource-rich country. Look at Japan, one of the top-producing countries, but they don't have a lot of internal resources. Singapore, they might produce something that might be more on a service scale, financial scale. They're going to provide a service that they can change on the international market and exchange for goods and other types of commodities to kind of keep them afloat. And so I think when we're looking at this, you bring up a good point of, opening up that market because not every country is going to be able to produce everything fully and solely for their people. Mm-hmm. They could but not to the point where the people are going to be satisfied and, and market demand is going to be met fully um, and, and there's going to be tons of inefficiencies, lack of quality as you mentioned um, and just inferior goods, lack of competition to kind of mm-hmm. really help and increase any type of actual progress within the marketplace.
0: Yeah, now, now one aspect of all this, the, of the cons of protectionism that really I didn't, I wasn't thinking about until I, I read through some of the material was protectionism really favors big businesses mm. uh, because in the protectionist state, you generally have a few uh, large entities that are able to lobby and have the means to lobby the government because a lot of what of what you rely on is controlled by the government regulations yeah. <laughs> because they're letting you, they're putting the taxes on the goods coming into the country, either that's raw materials or finished products. Uh, so big businesses actually are, you know, and 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 it's kind of funny because in the same uh, line, they basically are trying to say that this gar this actually improves innovation and protects. Some of those, uh, you know, institutional, uh, industry infancy, Mm -hmm. uh, and it allows people to take less risk as entering a new uh, segment or a market. Right. So instead of having to deal with all this competition uh, from around the world, you now have a lot less risk in, uh, you know, starting your own software company, or you're not competing against China anymore. You're only competing, or, or Japan. You're now just competing with the limited competition in the United States. Well, if somebody's already entered that space, you're going to have a lot of trouble <laughs> yeah. uh, getting into it now So, because that big business is the one that has the lobbying power that's going to maintain these regulations. So in my mind, this is kind of a scary uh, space to enter for small businesses, and small businesses, of course, are really what drives our economy growth. Definitely, yeah. I mean, that's going to really kind of move the needle for sure when we look at
1: small and medium-sized businesses in comparison to the large Mm -hmm. multi-conglomerates throughout the the world, especially throughout the country. And definitely going to be leaning towards a lot more resources, as you mentioned, being able to lobby at some of those points. And we set the game into a point where they're going to be set up nicely to win. I would want to do the same thing (laughs) if I had the ability to, um, but that's not necessarily going to be conducive of a lot of efficiencies, or not only efficiencies, but innovation.
0: Yeah, so innovation, uh, you know, obviously you're going to have lower costs if you're right. going to have more efficiency uh, in a free trade environment, that, may, that leads to lower costs overall, as well as, you know, obviously increased competition will also help suppress that cost function. So we can go out and afford, <laughs> you know, all these electronics uh, that we can, um, you know, you're going to have increased innovation. So you're going to have this constant. It's going to be a very volatile environment. Uh, A lot more volatile. Some people like that. Some people don't. Yeah. (laughs) And that's okay. Uh, But at the same time, we're also going to make a lot quicker progress over time. Uh, That being said, some of the pure free trade things doesn't mean that we maybe shouldn't look at, (laughs) you know, not just letting the market run rampant. (laughs) Yeah, there's definitely I mean, people are smart. Business
1: owners Mm -hmm. are smart. There's going to be some exploitations whenever possible. And I think even so, uh, Clarissa, Big Rick Barbie, Mm -hmm. uh, types in again. We certainly don't want xenophobic, but uh, Mm -hmm. I ideally think our imports of foreign products should be on par with our exports of our domestic goods. That goes without saying, right? I agree somewhat, but I also think even like so one of the things that even if our imports aren't on the same uh, par of our exports, I think there should be something at every price point to satisfy the overall economy. So if we're looking at, remember back in the day you had a, a CD player, a Discman? I think I'm gonna you have know. to think real hard. Yeah, <laughs> before <laughs> MP3s. Yeah. Um, you can get the fancy one with the anti-skip yep. system built in, or you can get the one from the dollar store. I mean, the one from dollar store might be imported from um, you know, Southeast Asia or something like that, and the quality might not be there, but you're putting at that lower price point. Mm-hmm. And at that point, you can su- supply someone that has that demand for that price point they don't want the top of the line fancy one so i am for um you know making sure that we have quality goods but also being sure that there's something at every price point for all the consumers just because as you mentioned optionality competition really
0: when people when businesses compete the people win yeah Exactly. And, you know, this goes without saying, but when you have trade tensions between uh, governments and countries, uh, that is not a good thing in general, especially when you're messing with people's money. You can get economic disparity across the globe. Uh, You see that within communities. When you have too much economic disparity from the hot, from the very wealthy and affluent to the very poor and uh, impoverished, that creates Dissonance, (laughs) and you and you cannot sustain that uh, that model for very long, as all sorts of conflicts arise. Now, not saying that pure protectionism leads us down that path, but it is in that direction. Yeah. Uh, Some of these modern day examples of what we're seeing this in, obviously, are the tariffs that we mentioned earlier. uh, You know. Again, going back and forth with China over tariff trade war, probably not in our best interest in the long run. Uh, But the vaccine, vaccine distribution, they are now getting, it is starting to become almost a point of contention among European Union countries as they don't have control of all the means of production and they now cannot get... Uh, part of the vaccine supplied to them and they're buying up and they're starting to hoard things. If countries can't figure out a way to get along, the whole global economy suffers. Yeah, everyone loses. Everyone loses in that scenario. You can hoard all the vaccines you want. So what if Liechtenstein is 100% vaccinated, if the rest of Europe is not? (laughs) You cannot function that way. You do not have the resources you need to sustain uh, your government and your economy and that's just gonna to lead to global destabilization. So we have to figure out a way to balance these things. And that enters a whole other factor, mm-hmm. government, right? So yep. I can only imagine if I was
1: a government official mm-hmm. and I want my legacy to show or reflect mm-hmm. something, how did I respond in these times? And then maybe I wanna show that my particular district or state or segment or mm-hmm. country outperformed the entire globe or we responded so mm-hmm. quickly. When they might start hoarding or, you know, allocating more resources that might they might not all mm-hmm. need in order to really kind of prop themselves up, just yeah. to kind of protect that
0: legacy. So I think you're looking at government. That's a whole other variable yeah. as well. So I think the lesson here today is that we should not go towards this isolationist. Type viewpoint, it doesn't work in the long run, especially in today's connected world. Uh, We it doesn't mean that there can't be some protectionist policies out there in certain areas, but yeah, that's I think that's the lesson of today. I learned a lot, especially as a lot of these companies are looking at nearshoring and reevaluating their supply chains over the next several years uh, to try to de-risk. You know, there definitely needs to be diversification in the supply chain and sourcing right now, and they're definitely looking at that because you can't have all your eggs in one basket because What's the, what's the use of having it all in one country? Yeah. Uh, if it's going to be in one country, it might as well be in yours, yeah. <laughs> you know, if you're going to do that. Uh, so as we're closing up today, again, thanks, everybody, for watching. Debate topic for today. The Bernie Sanders meme is already tired. Yes. Wow, that's yes. a short debate. I, yes. I, I was going to – I said it. <laughs>
1: and I, I was late to the meme as well because I just remember seeing pictures of it all online. Hmm. And I'm just like, okay, this is funny. And then the internet just responded in mm-hmm. such a massive way, as the internet always does, mm-hmm. and blew it up. And I'm seeing other people do the challenge, like they're doing the exact oh, same no. poses. Them.
0: Here we go. Ten years from now, we're yeah. gonna be looking back. You remember we were looking at that stupid Bernie meme. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> no, yeah, I still, I still, I still,
0: I still actually love the mittens and the whole thing. It's kind of, it's still, I still get a chuckle out of it.
1: My only wish is mm-hmm. that I hope this lasts long enough <laughs> to uh, October, so someone can be that for Christmas, and people actually remember. <laughs> what it is
0: yeah no I, I will forget it just like we forgot tiger king i remember here, <laughs> and he
1: didn't get a party he
0: didn't get a pardon he didn't get anything so uh again thanks everybody for watching uh you know download the freight waves tv app on podcast players everywhere look up freightonomics or freightcasts and get every freight waves podcast such as great quarter guys What the truck put that coffee down and drilling deep thanks again well that was a pretty good one yeah you know, have right about it. did you drink your water beef? Did you drink your water today? I didn't drink any water today.